0: this week on the Iowa Watch Connection.
1: Even though I was born in in the U.S., the only
2: time I've ever been
1: called an American um, has been when I'm abroad.
0: Feeling like a part of your surroundings is important.
2: People will ask where I'm from or where I'm actually from or they actually met where my parents are from.
0: But it's challenging when you're not really part of either culture.
2: You're not
1: one or you're not the other, but you're somewhere in the middle
0: first-generation Americans. Our topic this week.
3: The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism. Online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein.
0: We have all felt uncomfortable at one time or another due to a sense of not fitting in. Perhaps we're the oldest person in a room full of younger people. Perhaps a fan of one athletic team surrounded in the stands by opposing fans. But those are temporary situations, and we can remove ourselves from them and move to a more comfortable setting easily. Imagine always being identified by that non-majority characteristic. Imagine being between two disparate cultures. One side treats you as being from somewhere else, and that somewhere else doesn't accept you either. It's an issue confronted by so-called first-generation Americans. They were the topic of an Iowa Watch report earlier this year. The executive director and editor of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, Lyle Muller, has the story.
4: We'll start this report hearing from Isaac Medina of Marshalltown, Iowa. But you quickly will hear from two other Iowans as well. First, Medina who says the only time he gets referred to as an American is when he visits Mexico. Medina said that in Iowa and in the United States in general, he is referred to as Mexican. Medina, in his early 20s, says he often has felt as though he isn't treated like a U.S. citizen, despite being born in this country.
1: Even though I was born in in the U.S., um, you know, 21 years of my life, The only time I've ever been called an American um, has been when I'm abroad, especially in Mexico. So it's that situation where in the US, you know, you're Mexican uh, and then in Mexico,
4: you're American. This is where Nikki Nguyen enters the story. She is followed by Giordano Liriano.
2: People um, will ask where I'm from or where I'm actually from or they actually meant where my parents are from.
5: Despite being born in the US, my lineage traces back to something further than this country and vice versa. I can be solely Dominican, which I'm referred to as in 90% of my day when speaking culturally, uh, but that doesn't also uh, take into consideration my American
4: side. All three of these Iowans are first-generation Americans, born in the United States and raised by immigrants. All three studied at the University of Iowa where a then-Iowa Watch reporter, Krista Johnson, caught up with them. They talked about the challenge they feel in the middle of two different cultures, from the United States that is home, but also the countries from which their parents came. Those struggles include dealing with misconceptions about who they are and extra pressure to succeed so that they can prove that they, but also their ethnic communities, are worthy in the eyes of other Americans. Nikki Nguyen can remember her parents telling her she was becoming too Americanized when she did not speak Vietnamese while growing up in Des Moines, Iowa. Nguyen, who turned 21 on the first day of 2017, grew up hearing how her mother escaped from Vietnam during the U.S. war with that country by running through elephant grass at night. Then she would go to school, where teachers told her she should be thankful for what her parents went through to come to the United States. The pressure, she told our reporter, Krista Johnson, was attaining model minority status.
2: I think there's a little kind of tension between Vietnamese kids, because a lot of the times, parents will compare um, them, and so I always felt like, because my parents would throw out, you know, you're not being Vietnamese enough, or you've been Americanized, because I think another kid speaks Vietnamese, a lot better than I do. Um, and, you know, I felt
4: like it was unfair. And I didn't feel like I was good enough. Giordano Liriano, who originally is from Harlem, New York, talks about being told he was not Dominican enough. The slams often would come from older people while visiting the Dominican Republic when he couldn't say a certain Spanish phrase correctly. But he'd catch the comments back home, too, when his friends in the United States said, he is too Dominican.
5: I was speaking to a white American, uh, and I would refer to as a Dominican. I don't necessarily take it to heart. I don't. I don't think it's a, a bias. It's it's a uh, it's it's a way to identify me as other. However,
4: now here's something you might not have thought about, especially if you wish people think you are smart. Nikki Nguyen explains it.
2: The biggest microaggression that I've felt growing up is the model minority. I think that's largely in part because my mom pushed me academically so much compared to others. But no, I think it's the same for others as well. You're either not living up to model minority or you are the model minority. And I was always deferred to as, you know, smart because I'm Asian. People jokingly ask me to do their homework or they would just try to copy homework or just something like that for me. Um, and I think that really negates how much work I've put into, you know, my academics.
4: Why does any of this matter? Here's Isaac Medina.
1: You try to find your place within, fully acknowledging that you're not one or you're not the other, but you're somewhere in the middle. Uh, and sometimes the middle can get mushy.
4: Medina told interviewer Krista Johnson that his father, Alfonso, came to the United States many years ago without legal documents to work in California strawberry fields. Alfonso needed a job to care for his family. He'd go to Mexico every few months hoping to reunite permanently with his family once they had enough money to do so but those visits became too risky when border security increased in the 1980s, so Alfonso stayed in the United States to work. He finally gained legal status to stay in the country through the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. The family relocated into Marshalltown, and even though Isaac Medina was born and raised there, he says he feels a certain need to do well, to represent the best people from mexico have to offer as u.s citizens
1: it's harder for me i guess to assert myself as an equal or as an american you know again despite me being born here uh, it just it just takes that little extra i mean i don't know why but that's how it works and i'm not going to deny that that's a thing that's a force working against me um, so in, in a lot of senses you know you have to you have two masks that's part of living on the hyphen um, and if and if you know re- leaning on the american uh, side of the hyphen means that you will be able to get better opportunities um, get ahead then by all means do it because you're also doing it for your community
4: i'm lyle muller for the iowa watch connection
0: All the talk of DREAMers and a DACA solution in the news led us to want to revisit this topic of first-generation Iowans with you this week. It's not directly tied to that national discussion, but it is part of an overall conversation going on about what America is all about and what it should stand for going forward. When we come back, a conversation with a man who has been on the front lines of the issue here in Iowa for a quarter century. That's next as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. Support for the Iowa Watch Connection comes from the Iowa Insurance Division's Iowa Fraud Fighters Program. This statewide initiative educates Iowans on how to double-check before they invest and shield their savings from scammers. Thousands of Iowans have attended fraud fighter forums across the state to learn about new scams circulating in their area and how to stay a step ahead of fraudsters. Learn how to fight fraud and why it is important to report scams at IowaFraudFighters.gov Support for the Iowa Watch Connection comes from AARP Iowa. Every two seconds someone's identity gets stolen that's why AARP launched the Fraud Watch Network, to arm people of all ages with the tools they need to spot and avoid scams. Learn how to protect yourself at AARP.org slash fraudwatch network. That's AARP.org slash fraudwatch network. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. The Reverend Abraham Funches Jr. is Executive Director of the Waterloo Commission on Human Rights. A South Carolina native, he first came to Iowa in 1994 and he has seen much since then. What is the most challenging thing for communities, large and small in the state of Iowa
5: these days,
0: when they try to diversify viewpoint, population, skill set, etc?
5: Well, I guess one of the most challenging things um, is really understanding the communities that they are trying to diversify and and get acclimated to the the community in which they live. And so our challenge, obviously, is to always make sure that we are effectively listening uh, to the immigrant population or the population in question.
0: Iowa is not just predominantly, but frankly, almost exclusively Caucasian. Does that cause problems for people who are coming here, either from other nations, other cultures, other parts of the country, that we perhaps who have lived here all our lives, and that includes me, that we're just not accounting for enough, that we're not taking into account enough as we try to welcome people in?
5: Uh, Possibly. I mean, obviously... Uh, It doesn't matter what your background is. If you um, are making every effort to be more inclusive, uh, then, you know, inclusivity can happen. Um, But without question, um, because Iowa uh, as a whole is predominantly white, it makes diversity a little more challenging. And so it's imperative Uh, among all of us, uh, whether it be black or brown or uh, some other immigrant population, that we speak up, that we engage in truth-telling, that we let people know exactly what we feel, uh, and those kinds of things. The anecdotal data, I think, goes a long ways in helping uh, all conscientious uh, folk in community understand what work needs to be done in order to make community more inclusive. Mm
0: -hmm. What is the benefit? of being more inclusive what is the benefit of consciously trying to diversify what is otherwise a native population
5: sure uh well the experience of understanding the world more effectively uh, is one huge benefit and then of course uh we've seen all of the data uh we've become a more prosperous community as well there's a there's a new platform out there right now called welcoming america And it's a movement among inclusive communities to make community more prosperous by, in fact, becoming more welcoming. Uh, The data show clearly that when you're more welcoming to all of the populations coming into a community, uh, the the community begins to flourish in more ways than one, not just economically, uh, but also in terms of social integration and the culture and the arts. And, of course, this is something that we believe every human being really appreciates, uh, regardless of background. And so whenever we can, uh, you know, move from uh, a superficial level of uh, friendship to more incarnational friendship, which is a movement that's also taking place in a lot of our faith communities all over the nation, uh, we believe that we can make communities stronger that way.
0: Do you find, as you work your way around your city of Waterloo, where you work, or areas around Iowa, do you find that there is resistance to the things you just mentioned? Or is it more often uncertainty as opposed to outright resistance?
5: Right. Well, I think it's a little combination of both, actually. Mm. Um, I think sometimes uh, what ends up being resistance is, is perhaps based on uncertainty. Um, the unknown is what you know causes fear among all of us, I guess, a lot of times, and that's exactly why we have to be deliberate and intentional about engaging in meaningful relationships that cross over racial and ethnic lines. I'll never forget, we had a conversation about Sanctuary City not too long ago in the city of Waterloo, and uh, we learned a lot from that conversation, to say the least. Uh, uh, you know, there was resistance there. Um, about us moving toward, um, you know, maybe adopting sanctuary status. And even though um, our police and our sheriff department representatives indicated that while we do not have sanctuary status, we operate like a sanctuary city, um, I think that still didn't resonate very well with people who had already predetermined that they were against doing anything, quite frankly, that seemed to welcome the immigrant into the community. So being in human rights and also being a minister, I was concerned about that. And obviously other conscientious individuals in community are concerned about making our community inclusive um, so that everyone feels welcome and that we also might become more prosperous as a community as a whole.
0: When I look at communities in the state of Iowa, and how they have evolved and developed, and how populations have changed. It seems to me that the biggest difficulty is lack of preparation, lack of conversation, and lack of understanding. I think in particular of Marshalltown, near where I grew up some 30 years ago, there was a huge influx in immigrants to work at a meatpacking plant, And the infrastructure of the community was just not prepared for that. And the Mm -hmm. results were at the very least mixed, if not overall negative at the time. What Mm -hmm. can citizens do, what can communities do to be more proactive to help ensure a positive outcome when there is an influx of uh, a certain population, and that influx could be one person or a hundred.
5: Right, absolutely. Well, I think you uh, mentioned something in the question itself, and that is conversation. How do we, how do we uh, make sure that we understand or build understanding across communities uh, to the degree that we can have more effective results when trying to uh, work with immigrant populations or whatever the case is? In Waterloo, we also have Um, you know a a plant that attracts uh, people from all backgrounds and uh, what we're finding is is that study circles is one methodology that needs to be used we used it effectively in the past we are trying to slowly implement uh, the methodology of study circles again where we pull people together in small groups and begin to talk about issues facing the community particularly around Um, You know the first-generation American immigrant populations whatever the case might be and we find that as we deliberately intentionally engage people um, around uh, difficult issues so that people began to talk freely and share uh, Their truths it it helps build understanding which is critical uh, to making communities stronger additionally uh, the human rights Uh, agency for the City of Waterloo has been engaged in town hall meetings. I mentioned one um, uh, about the conversation around Sanctuary City and what are the implications of that. But we are also doing it deliberately around other issues as well to try to get community to work together, to uh, bridge their understandings, to listen to others' viewpoints, uh, which is absolutely critical obviously, uh, before we can move on and make community um, uh, strong. Uh, in such a way that it encompasses everyone, everyone, and that's what our goal is all the time, obviously.
0: What unique challenges do first-generation Americans face in Iowa as 2017 moves toward 2018?
5: Well, one of the things that I see, um, especially as one who has worked very closely with the Congolese population uh, in the city of Waterloo, Uh, uh, Some language barriers, Um, you know, until they can bridge, you know, that great divide, they're always going to run into some challenges. Uh, But then a very close second, perhaps, is understanding the resources, Uh, what resources are already extant in community that can be tapped into to help them with certain issues that they could be facing, uh, whether it be legal challenges. Whether it just be issues of uh, distribution of certain goods, just knowing who the people are and where the resources are in communities. So language and uh, and then just understanding the layout of the community effectively is something that I find uh, very challenging uh, for immigrant populations, especially from my experience working with just the Congolese. But of course, uh, we know that there are other uh, populations: the Bosnians, the Burmese, et cetera, et cetera. And they're running into problems all the time, and that's why, uh, quite frankly, because and and maybe part of this is my bias, but the faith community can also play a very, very pivotal role when it comes to moving from mercy to justice with the immigrant population. Um, If we can become more welcoming uh, and more inclusive, um, even in our theological practice, I believe that this will make a big impact on the way the rest of community falls in the line. The Church historically has always played a pivotal role in terms of American sentiment towards certain populations of people and towards certain American policies. And this is becoming more and more uh, true as we look at Franklin Delano Roosevelt Roosevelt's New Deal and the role that ministers played, quite frankly, um, during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, even to the point that it affected our Pledge of Allegiance and our National Anthem. And so I, I would like to see uh, churches play a big, big, more pivotal role in terms of helping uh, first-generation Americans overcome some of these obstacles, um, which could, quite frankly, be eliminated as long as we're working together more effectively to bridge the understandings, to bridge um, you know, the knowledge base about who and where people can Um, reach resources.
0: Reverend Abraham Funches is Executive Director of the Waterloo Commission on Human Rights. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can visit us online, iowawatch.org. Click on the Iowa Watch Connection tab at the top of the page to listen to all or part of this program again for a list of stations that carry the program and more. iowawatch.org And you can comment on this week's program or suggest ideas for future programs by email. The address is radio at iowawatch.org I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week.